1: or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you can pick up with our new episodes next week. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. On today's show, I chat with Brennan Schlagbaum, better known as Budget Dog, To talk about the state of financial education and how to take control of your financial future, Brennan is a certified public accountant, investment coach, and author of Investing 101, Everything the Investor Needs to Know. I met Brennan from being active on social media, specifically on Instagram. Brennan has a passion for personal finance and teaching, so he took what he knew and decided to start sharing it on Instagram to help teach other people. And that's how he and I got connected. What I find great about my relationship with Brennan and what you'll hear in today's show is that we don't necessarily agree on everything. For example, he believes in being completely debt-free, including his mortgage. So he's paying down his mortgage as fast as he can. I don't personally like that strategy for myself. Now, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that strategy. It's certainly right for some people. It just isn't right for me personally. Despite me and Brennan having different opinions on how to approach personal finance and investing, we're able to frequently have civil conversations about these topics, as we did in this podcast, and frequently via text or email. And we have the same goal, and that's to help bring more awareness to financial education. What I'd like for you all listening to take away from this episode is that there's no one-size-fits-all strategy and that you can have conversations with people that think differently than you. You have to find what is right for you. I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but that's why I bring on a wide variety of guests so you guys can all hear different strategies and pick the best one for you. And once you've decided what's best for you, you don't necessarily have to try to convince every other person that your strategy is right and theirs is wrong or that yours is better than theirs. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with fellow financial educator, Brennan Schlagbaum.
0: You're listening to Millennial Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Millennial Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I bring in my good friend, Brennan Schlagbaum. Welcome to the show, Brennan.
2: Hey, we're Robert. How are you doing, man? Good to see you.
1: Tell us a bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today.
2: Yeah, so I was the typical American, I guess you could say. I went to school thinking that that was the only route. I got into school and I had a lot of debt on my name. So, dating back to 10 years ago, I left school with $40,000 on my name. And it was a scary reality. But that wasn't what all I had. So I got married shortly after. I took a look at the finances and I realized there was $76,000 added up to my name and my wife's, of course, because she took on my burden. And so we had to get moving. A lot of people, if you looked at the situation, would have said, this isn't that bad of a situation. Your budget's sitting there pretty. It looks okay. You can make the monthly payments. But then I was looking at the balance sheet and the balance sheet was what told me the right picture. And I was ultra concerned with seeing $76,000 in debt. So the payments, you know, monthly were okay, but I said, "Hey, we got to do something." So we sat down and we said, "All right, we're going to attack this debt and we're going to go as hard as possible over the next year or two and pay this all off." So that's kind of how my story started. This is how I got into Instagram, this is how I got into coaching people is I went through it myself and the burden that it took on me, I wanted to take away from other people. And so that $76,000 paid off in one year. And I got to start this Instagram account called Budget Dog. I currently work at nine to five. I'm at a big four CPA at Deloitte. And I was thinking, you know, there's two different things to this, right? There's I have the professional career and I have this Instagram persona, I guess you could say. How can I help as many people as possible? And it was through Instagram, social media. So I took that route aggressively. I pursued it. I struggled in the beginning growing and all that stuff. But with time, I've learned to master the social space. And so now I'm growing my presence, helping as many people as possible. And it's been a really cool journey so far. So that's where I sit today. I'm looking to grow within the next so many years. So we'll see where it takes us, but this is in the very beginning, initial stages.
1: When you and your wife got married, did one of you bring the majority of the debt to the relationship or was it pretty equal?
2: Yeah. So that was the biggest thing was she actually was the golden child. She had zero debt to her name. I brought the car. I brought the student loan. I guess you could say she brought the engagement ring a little bit, but in general, man, like it was all me. It was all my burden. And so we looked at it as a group though. And that's one of the biggest things I think with couples is just because one brings the bad part, I guess you could say to the relationship, it's a team effort at that point. And so to be able to come together for her and I to see eye to eye was a big part of our story. And it's a big piece of everyone's story. It's hard to just go through this journey alone or one spouse is going one way, one spouse is going the other. You have to be together. So with that being said, we were on the same page. And although I brought more of it, she helped me along the way. She was making a good salary, helping pay everything off. And at the same time I was doing, working together and it was a group effort. But yeah, I would definitely say I brought the most of the burden to the equation.
1: For anybody that's interested in more of this dynamic of managing relationships and debt and just money in general, back on episode 88, I had best-selling author Aaron Lowry on the show to talk exactly about all of this, where we went into what it takes to manage relationships, whether it be a spouse, a sibling, a parent, whatever the situation is with money and debt. So if you guys are interested in a much deeper conversation about that definitely go check out episode 88. Brennan, you and I have had quite a few different conversations off of the podcast about various different things. In general, I'd say that we agree on this idea that more people need better financial education. But where we differ is actually in the strategies that we believe in. And one example of this is what we just talked about. You believe in very strongly in paying down debt as fast as you can where I don't necessarily believe in that approach as much. I do to a certain extent, but not as much as you do. I do think what you've been able to do with your debt is incredible. You started your first mortgage payment back on August 1st, 2016, and you'll have it completely paid off this year in 2021, just five years after you got your mortgage. There's no other way to explain it other than saying that that's an incredible feat. But for me personally, with interest rates so low, this strategy just really isn't attractive. Why have you chosen to take this route? And why do you believe that strategy is best?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of people come down to it and they look at it from a math perspective. And so I like to kind of look at it at both sides. And so I have clients that kind of go, this interest rate's really low. Why would I pay this debt off? And my thinking is, me personally, at least, is... I still owe that debt. No matter if it's 0%, no matter if it's 28%, I still owe the debt. And me as a CPA, I look at the balance sheet a lot. So when I go measure my net worth, when I list out my assets and liabilities, I still see that total liability of that car, that house, that credit card, and it's not attractive to me. And so I think a lot of part times in finance in general is the behavioral side of things really takes a toll on a lot of people. Me personally... I am a very, very low risk individual. So when I look at that, it seems like a lot of risk, and it seems like a burden to me. So it doesn't better my day. And so what I would say to most people is, hey, first off, non-mortgage debt above 6%, the industry is going to say pay that off before investing pretty much every time. Anything below that, they'll say invest and pay off debt at the same time. My approach is non-mortgage debt. I would wipe it out really fast. Every client I've worked with has been able to pay off their debt within two years If you're looking at the grand scheme of things, compound interest, obviously, the more time you have, the more beneficial. But when you see one to two years of a debt payoff cycle, it's really not going to take much of a toll. Now, the other side of the equation is my mortgage that you mentioned. And so with my mortgage, you see me aggressively paying that off. What you don't see and what a lot of people don't see is I'm still investing a large portion of my income. So 20% of my income, gross income is still going to investments and then anything on top of that's going to my my mortgage. So I always say 15% to retirement minimum. Anything over that, whatever fits your lifestyle best. And so for me, I think paying off my mortgage would make my lifestyle better. I would free up cash flow. I understand from a math perspective there's an opportunity cost to it. And so I've calculated that, I've looked into it in depth. My wife and I have discussed this. But we have come to the conclusion that, hey, at 30 years old, if we don't have a mortgage and we have no other payments, we are unstoppable going forward. We can invest 50% of our income if we want. We can scale back. We can invest 35%, but the flexibility is there. And so that's the mindset that we, I guess you could say, drive with every single day is the freedom, the flexibility, and the opportunities are going to be endless once we have that debt paid off.
1: I think the most important component there is that you're still investing a significant percentage. So there's people that don't invest that percentage without paying down debt. So the fact that you're doing that and paying down debt, I think that's the real key because a lot of times it's not, can I still invest a significant piece and pay down debt? It's which one do I do? And that's when you have that dynamic that I probably would lean more towards investing than paying down debt personally. But I mean, in your case, I would probably do exactly what you're doing as well because you're still investing so much. Right. And
2: there's the argument that, hey, you can invest 50% right now and just keep a mortgage payment for 30 years. My take to that is saying, okay, so if you want me to extend my mortgage to 30 years, why don't I just extend it to 50 years out in California? I think they have some mortgages available for 50 years. Why don't I just keep taking a loan out, refinancing at the lowest possible rate for as long as possible and continue that my whole life if that's what we're trying to do is accomplish maximizing the dollar. But that's not my goal here. And so that's why I lean the other way more so.
1: I often get asked how to manage the dynamic of living for now while also striving towards financial goals. In your case, paying down a significant amount of debt so quickly, you've probably had to make some sacrifices. How have you managed this dynamic?
2: That's a tough one. People don't like to make sacrifices ever. It doesn't matter if it's going to the gym every day. People don't like that. It's tough to really adapt your habits and stuff like that. And I think it comes down to mindset. So, being able to tell yourself, I am locked in, it doesn't matter what comes at me from whichever angle, I'm going to lock in and do what I'm trying to accomplish here. And so, if you look at your goals long term, you can say, Hey, I'm going to go get X, Y, and Z. How am I going to get that? You write it down on paper, you put it in action, and you start the plan, and things are going to come at you. Life is going to happen. For example, when people, when I paid off debt, it was a big challenge because I expected along the way, hey, people are going to ask me to go on vacations, weekend trips. My friends are going to ask me to do X, Y, and Z. And if I said yes to everything, there's not a chance I would have been able to pay down the amount of debt I did, $76,000 in one year, if I just said yes to everything. So having the confidence to say no goes a long way because you know the ultimate goal is bigger than the present. So people need to look at the bigger picture and ask themselves why they're doing it. And keep coming back to that why because when you're in the moment, it's a lot easier to look at the why than that cookie, or if you're trying to lose a bunch of weight, or that quick PS5 that you want to go buy that's only 500 bucks, it eats away at you, literally. So I think it's a mindset thing.
1: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
0: Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married, and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. And most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com. mi That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30 day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon? And millions of other queries right at your fingertips. Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com.
1: A debt I've been thinking a lot about lately is student loans, specifically because of the new administration and the talks of potentially forgiving some student loans, maybe a portion of it. I don't want to get into a political discussion on whether this is the right or wrong policy, red, blue, nothing like that. But knowing that there is the potential for the government to forgive some student loans how should listeners think about or approach repaying their student loans right now?
2: So this is an interesting conversation. And I get this question often on my Instagram. So first things first is saying, everything you do should be you in control. So obviously, you need to approach the situation as if, hey, I need to pay this off because it's mine and I need to take accountability. I need to take action and initiative. So if you do that and lead with that, Everything else is just kind of you know noise on the outside. Now, we can't ignore if the current administration forgives, let's say, ten thousand dollars that they're looking at doing, go ahead and take it. But I would not game plan around that because, for example, when I was paying off my student debt back in 2018, these conversations were already being brought to the table. If I would have said, hey, I'm gonna wait to pay that off, I'm gonna pay the minimums until the government comes to my relief. It would be 2021 right now, and I would still be waiting for the government to do it. We've seen with recent stimulus checks, they're willing to dish out quite a bit, but on an individual level, $1,200, $600. And so how much is that really going to add up over time? And if you have $40,000, you cannot expect them to just wipe out $40,000. They could, you never know, but I would take the initiative and just attack it myself. And anything that they provide is kind of sugar on, on the top
1: back in early January, I posted on Instagram saying, and this is the quote that I posted, it said, you have to actually invest the cash in your brokerage account. And the reason I did that was because I had a guest on the podcast who told me a story about an individual who contributed to their retirement account for nearly 20 or 30 years, just like she should. And then when she got to retirement, she excitedly opened her brokerage statement and she realized that she didn't have much more than she had contributed and obviously she expected to have a lot more than that. Why didn't she have more money? Well, she didn't actually invest the money. It was just sitting in cash in that retirement account, earning practically nothing for the whole period that it was there when it could have been compounding. Everyone told her that she needed to invest, so she listened and invested, or at least she thought she did. No one told her that she actually had to do something with the money that was in the retirement account. Just a couple days ago, you tweeted about this same idea break down the difference between actually investing the money that's in the account and then how the different vehicles are that hold the money.
2: So I have a really good post on this actually. So it's a visual of how index investing and how investing works. And basically what it does is at the grand level, you have a broker, right? This is the company that you work with. So let's say Vanguard, you probably have heard of, Charles Schwab, Fidelity, or some big names out there they house all the investments, they house all the accounts. And so as an investor, as myself, I need to go to one of those guys and say, hey, I want to hold money in an account, whichever one that may be. It could be a Roth IRA, it could be traditional, 401k through work. And so within that account, they're holding your investments. But within the actual account, you have to go one step further. And that's actually where you select your investments. And so there's things called a money market fund, like a cash account essentially is where a lot of money that is invested, per se, goes to by default. Now, most of the big guys, brokerage firms that have a 401k through work will default you to what's called a target date fund. So you're technically going to be invested at that point. But there are a lot of cases where people put their money into this account, but then it's flowing into a a cash account, essentially, which is no different than a bank account. And so what I like to tell people to do is, first off, we have to understand what we're investing in. So if you know what you're invested in, this problem isn't going to even pop up because you're looking and you're researching and you're seeing what you should be putting your money into. But there's been some horror stores where, like you said, 20, 30 years down the road, they haven't looked into what they've invested, assuming, hey, I'm doing the right thing. I'm putting 6% in to my investment account. With time, I've been told I'll be a millionaire, but they're led astray and they're forgetting the crucial point of this is you have to actually select the investment in the account. And so, That's a huge point I try to make. So I was trying to save some lives yesterday by tweeting that and making that go viral to save as many people as possible, because it's happened more than once.
1: Yeah. I actually had quite a few people reach out to me from that post and say, hey, I didn't know this. Like, What do I need to do? I've been contributing to a Roth and I haven't done anything other than that. So what do I need to do? And I was able to help as many people as I could. And then I saw a lot of people responded to your tweet and felt the same way. They're like, I didn't know this. and, And they sounded like they needed to go back and do some research as well. So a lot of times, I think for us, it, it almost seems like we forget those baby steps because we've been doing it for so long, but there's a lot of people that what the step they're on is, and they need to know that as well. And it's super, super important.
2: That's a good point you made is we forget the baby steps. As you get more ingrained into the investing world, to anything that you're specializing in, you have to take a step back, especially if you're a teacher and think baby step one, baby step two, the fundamentals. And so I try to teach the fundamentals a lot because of that, because there could be 55 people that read my post and maybe two of them are experienced investors. I could be benefiting the remaining majority of them by just saying the basics that I think I take for granted, but are actually the most important to the whole equation. So that's a good point that you made.
1: There's a bias and I can't think of what it's called, but there's a bias that people have that you and I likely have is because we know something, we assume that everybody else knows what we know. And clearly, that's not always the case. Education, specifically financial education, has really just completely changed. There are so many resources available nowadays, especially at a low cost that weren't available before. First, what is currently wrong with our financial education system? And second, how are these low cost resources going to change the future of financial education?
2: I don't know if traditional education is necessarily wrong. I think it's what was in place at an earlier date and time. And I think going forward, I think online education could possibly replace it in different forms or traditional education is going to have to get on the same hemisphere essentially and realize they have to adapt. They have to change. And currently they are not. My mom's a teacher, for example. And I asked her, I said, hey mom, what do you think about the current traditional education? What do you think needs to be changed? Do you think financial education needs to be taught? She looked at me like there was nothing to be changed. So there's a lot of people, believe it or not, in the education system that think that is what needs to be taught. And so is it going to change and adapt or is online education in a skill-based type of community going to develop? And so I think that a lot of big companies are going to see, hey, this person, I could hire this person today because they took X, Y, and Z course and they have this skill and they're going to be better suited to start in a lower Onboarding costs, essentially, then the person that went to four years of school spent a hundred thousand dollars in school loans and doesn't really know the practicality of this job. So traditional education, I've went through it, right? I went through online education. Every single time I come back to the online education and I realize this taught me more. Self-education, every single time has been better for my personal experience. And I think that might be the case going forward. I think a skill-based type of economy might develop with time. Now, I'm not going to say somebody's going to go on Instagram or Twitter and companies are going to look at that as enough education, but I think there's going to be adaptability within the community to eventually that could be one of the skills that they're looking for is like how to get invested. Do you understand how to do this skill at work? Because I came into the workforce not knowing anything on my actual job, but I felt like I knew a lot from the books. So online education, I think, could have a huge, huge change in the near time future. Honestly, I've been looking at my child's education, which we don't have yet, but eventually is, do I want to invest into a 529 or do I want to invest into a UTMA? And so I've been considering the differences because of, will the traditional education still be around? Will 529s be grandfathered in? Will there be changes? And so there's been a deep conversation with my wife and I on those topics because of that.
1: On your point of 529 versus UTMA, I have a two and a half year old son. I chose UTMA because of exactly what you just said. I don't want him to feel like he has to go to college because he has this huge lump sum of money sitting aside for him that can only be used for college. And I don't personally believe that college is going to be what it is today in 15, 16 years when he's ready to go to college. Truthfully, if I could go back, I probably wouldn't go to college. And I have an MBA, so I've done grad school. I've done it all. I was in school for a while, a long time. I don't know if I'd go back and do it again. So for me personally, I chose a UTMA for my actual son.
2: And I would like to think that the 529s would be tailored or there would be restrictions lifted if things do change, but I don't really want to rely on that. And I think a UTMA is an awesome alternative to the 529. So we've been heavily considering the UMA because of that.
1: I saw an interesting video from Elon Musk the other day, and it kind of touches on this dynamic that you talked about of taking courses and having a skill set that you can bring to the workforce rather than just a degree. And in this video, Elon basically said, I told everybody that any job description we have, it cannot say that it requires a degree. It says it needs to require exceptional ability and not a required degree. And what he went on to say was that you need to be able to demonstrate that you have exceptional ability. And that's how I feel the future of getting jobs is going to be because you know right now, I think that's the big disconnect. You can just put that you have a degree on your resume and everybody knows what that means. Everybody assumes that means that you have a certain level of education, whereas you could have a higher education than somebody with a degree because you've studied more from books and podcasts, but you're not being able to show that to them. So I think what's going to happen is if you're studying in untraditional ways and have this knowledge you're going to need to also learn the skill set of being able to present that information to a potential employer and get them to understand the value in you not having a degree and how you obtain that education.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's why I talk about the skill-based economy is like, as a self-employed person in the potential of being self-employed is if I were to go hire somebody, I would not look for certifications. I would not look for degrees because I would want somebody that I could go pick out of the workforce and say, hey, go do this task or go do this task. And I want you to be self-sustainable. I don't want to have to sit there and onboard you and teach you. I want you to be able to pick up the skill because you've learned it elsewhere and take it, even adapt it, even build and be creative with it. I feel like a lot of traditional education puts you in the workforce. And I think the workforce has a box around you. I don't think it allows for adaptability and creativity. It's like, hey, you're going to do X, Y, and Z every single month, especially in the accounting field that I'm in. And there's no other thing that you're going to do that's what we're going to pay you for and i think that shuts a lot of people's minds down they become every single day they're going to the same place doing the same thing their brain and their creativity's closing down they're tired when they get home because they're tired of the same thing they're doing every day they're losing interest and they're losing that faith they get home they just want to rest and hang out and i think a lot of dreams go to die when that happens and i've realized that with myself is i need to find the the kid in me again the, the dreamer and somebody that's actually believing that I could take this and create this versus it is what it is, and that's what it's going to be. And I think that's a huge thing. And I think a lot of people are starting to realize that, especially with the engagement online. The engagement online has been incredible. People can talk across the world in seconds. I mean, think about where you are and where I am. We're sitting here talking almost as if we're in the same room. I think that's invaluable, really.
1: The only thing I'd add is that I can't really speak for other majors, but I've been through finance, economics, and accounting. What I learned in all of those, courses and through those degrees, and even my, I'm a CMA, your CPA, very little of that was actually applicable to what I actually did in my day-to-day job. And I've scaled the corporate ladder. I started at the very bottom. I didn't get to the CFO spot, but I got pretty high. And throughout that whole thing, there was very, 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 very little that I used from my traditional education in my day-to-day job. There were some times where I'd kind of lean on some theory that I learned in school. But I mean, This tactical stuff, like even to get into the nitty-gritty of accounting, like even they teach you debits and credits and all the accounting in school, but like when you're going to do that in an accounting software in the real world, like it's so different. It's so, so different. It's like it's almost like it was useless to even to learn, you know?
2: The concept and the fundamentals are there, but the way you actually work and do it in the real world doesn't even matter if you almost even know that theory, right? It's almost there's no point. And I think a lot of traditional education teaches that theory based learning. And while that's beneficial to some extent, I don't think we should be paying to do that to get a job. It should almost be reversed, whereas the online skills, the entrepreneur type skills that you're trying to learn should be the ones we're paying for. And hey, if we want to go learn some theory, be a deep thinker, and think different things like Aristotle back in the day, we can do that, but we don't need to necessarily pay for that.
1: If there's somebody that can bring the value of networking from traditional education, into an online platform. And I know there are people that try to do it. I would argue that nobody necessarily has replicated it. But if somebody can replicate the networking value from traditional education on an online platform, I think it's game over. I think that that is going to be the future.
2: Totally. Networking is the skill of mine. I love it. I love networking with people. I love talking to people. But it's funny because you say that. And I think of traditional education, not traditional education, but the workforce, right? When you have a corporate Event that you're supposed to go network at. How many people actually get excited for that because they're not passionate about what they're doing? So they're not really looking for business. They're not really caring about it. They're like, it's more of a requirement. Whereas when I think about networking with my online account, meeting people, I seek that out. I get excited. I, I light up when I meet somebody new and I'm like, hey, we could work together in this capacity or whatnot. And it's really exciting. So I agree with you. I think people that are going to learn to take the networking game from corporate and bring it to the online world. I think it's already happening, right? I think some social medias are kind of starting to do that. Discord is a new platform. Clubhouse is more engaged. I think those are really good platforms that are starting to take that basic fundamental strategy and bring it into the real world. And I think we're seeing a lot of change with that.
1: Yeah, I've been forced to go to some of those networking events. Even in traditional education, you're forced to go to these networking events, or in the corporate world, you're forced to go to them. And like you said, you're not excited. But where I did get crazy, value from networking was playing on the company softball team. You're playing with all these guys and girls that they're from engineering or legal or whatever. And that's networking. That's the valuable networking that I got. Even in college, you go to these and you're expected to talk about work. Whereas you go to these other things and you're talking about... You eventually end up talking about work because that's what you all have in common, but it doesn't start out that way. right? It's all more personal. You build real relationships and it was the same for me in college when i played sports you know that's how i made a lot of networking connections it's not going to these you know financial networking events that you were told you were supposed to go to it's playing flag football with 20 other dudes and just getting to meet them all you know that's how the networking comes about
2: i meet so many people at the gym on a daily basis new faces that walk in i'll just go talk to anybody but when i go to a corporate event i'll leave that event and all those business cards i got i've already written them off i've already forgotten about them Because I'm calling my wife saying, hey, that was horrible. I'm I'm on my way home. And that's just the truth of it. It's forced, awkward engagement that nobody really wants to have. So there's not true growth with it. Whereas like something that's fun, organic, like a sports or an event out and about, like at a grocery store, you could run into somebody and it could be the CFO of Kroger. And you could be starting to have a conversation. You would get to know them better during that environment than a forced engagement through a corporate event.
1: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
0: Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff, or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right. Back to the
1: show. As part of the financial education that you offer, you talk about how a budget isn't restrictive and you're not cheap for having a budget. What do you mean by this? Why doesn't a budget have to be restrictive?
2: So I make the case that Jeff Bezos needs a budget. (laughs) A lot of people would disagree with that, but I think of a budget as somewhere to tell you where your money's going. So if I have a hundred dollars or if I have a hundred million dollars, I want to know where all those dollars are going because I can optimize in my life better. And so I think it's a tool. I call my budget template a budget tool because I want the connotation behind budgets to change. I think a lot of people look at it as, well, if I have a budget, I'm going to have to take all these expenses away every single month. I can't go get my nails done. A lot of women would think that, right? I can't do All these different things that for when I didn't have a budget I could do, that's not the case. You can add a line item for that, but you have to come to the realization, it's being an adult. It's taking accountability and realizing, hey, money, whether we like it or not, it's a big part of our lives. If we can say all this money is going here, here, and here, our life is going to be a lot more simpler than if we're like, I don't really remember where that dollar went or that $300 went. You know, And you start to get overwhelmed when you don't know where things are. So I think a budget is a huge tool that everyone needs, no matter if you make $20,000 or $200,000.
1: A budget doesn't change how much money you're making. It doesn't change how much money you have to spend. It's just telling you, like you said, where it's going.
2: And that's the point I try to make all the time. People instantly, I have friends that say, oh, is that in the budget? Like They'll make jokes and social gatherings. Is that in the budget? Is that in the budget? It's like, actually, it's not because I don't value it. But it's not because of that. And that's what they don't understand. I'm trying to teach that education is like, my budget in the month of December, we invested $30,000, but we spent probably $100 in frivolous items because our budget said, hey, we have $100 extra to spend there. We have 30000 to the investing side because we value the investing side better because we want freedom. We don't want to just go buy it aimlessly. And so would you call me cheap if you found out i spent $30,000, $30,000 and $100, but i just allocated it differently than you. I would assume that you're saying, "Hey, they have some money, but it's where you put it is the important thing and that's where i think a budget tells you your values."
1: Yeah, that's a good point because if you tell your friend, "Hey, i spent 30 grand this month," and you don't tell them what it was on, they probably think, "Wow, you know, they spent a lot of money." But then if you get into, "Hey, 25 of that went to investing, the other 5 went to Snowboarding, they wouldn't think that you really spent that much money in comparison to the thirty
2: thousand. Right, right. I get it all the time from family and friends. It's a value based thing, and I think a lot of people are afraid to actually budget because it brings out what they're actually spending money on. It. It kind of exposes that. It makes people uncomfortable, and people don't want to be uncomfortable naturally, right? So they stray away from it. They're scared to see the reality.
1: Some guests on the show strongly oppose individual stock investing. Recommending strictly index funds instead. Others believe individuals can beat the market by picking individual stocks. Where do you fall on this debate? Does it depend on the person?
2: It does depend on the person. And for the vast majority of people listening, I'm going to say go index fund investing until you are an expert. And even experts will get burned by the market. The market is not something to play with. I'm not saying you can't beat the market. There are people like my uncle specifically that has had. 1% 1% better than the market since he's begun investing. And so he's an expert and that's 1%. 1% you know, is good in marketing and in investing terms, but it's tough to do and it takes a lot of time. A lot of us would rather focus our time elsewhere by either making more money, income that we can invest in index funds, or is just spending our time elsewhere. We don't want to be glued to our TV and our computers and phones, looking at the market, seeing the latest trends, what earnings have done what. Because that's not really life. If we're sitting there glued to one specific thing, we're not really enjoying different aspects of life. Me as a family guy, I like to spend time with my family and friends. And if I was sitting there staring at my phone all day, wondering if Apple is going to release a new product or there was new a fraud allegation with NVIDIA, that would put me on edge and I would not be the same person. So I think it's easier to just do passive investing through index fund investing, and just let your money ride. Go focus on what matters, if that's making more money, if that's you know relationships, and then let your money ride. Because what people don't understand is, okay, if one person gets 1% better, that's great. That's a better return long-term. But all that time and energy spent to do that 1%, was it worth it? And most times, you're not going to be the plus 1%, you're going to be that negative 5% compared to the market there was a study up to 2015, the average equity investor actually returned 5.69% or something along the lines of that versus the market of returning about 9%. And that tells you that people are too active in the market. And most people, 95% of people are going to get burned if they continually try to day trade, swing trade, options trading, all that kind of stuff. It's cute. It's exciting. But good investing, in my opinion, is boring investing.
1: What do you think about there being a potential index fund bubble?
2: I think it's bogus because if you know the core, what an investment or index fund investment is, is essentially you're buying the market. So if there's a index fund bubble and all these people are going into, let's say the S and P 500, and it's overvalued per se, okay, well the market's going to crash eventually. But is it going to take that big of a toll? I think if you look at a market in general, there's going to be peaks and valleys. That's part of it. So if it does burst, and it will at some point people are going to sell, it's going to dip, the world's going to end, and then it's going to go right back up. So, you're buying the entire, let's say, the total world stock market index with like a Vanguard ETF with VT, the Vanguard Total World. If the total world stock market collapses, well, I think there's bigger issues to worry about than your investments at that point because the whole world's on notice.
1: I think people often misuse the term bubble as well. I think bubble has become a catchword in the financial industry. You know, everybody wants to say everything's a bubble whereas a lot of times maybe the index funds aren't in a bubble. It's just a business cycle, maybe it's a market cycle. You know, things pull back every 7 to 10 years historically. That is a proven fact. That's how the market cycles work. Maybe index funds aren't in a bubble, they're just ready for a cycle and a retraction.
2: And that's another thing is people like to put valuations on these companies, right? And these index funds and all these kind of things it is you can only value so much. So this is why it goes back to the index fund investing versus individual stock picking is you can value a company at X, Y, and Z, but there's so many different metrics to look at that even if there's a hundred metrics and you pick the exact right one, other people could drive that stock price another way just based on human behavior. And you can't account for that. And so there's all these metrics and numbers to look at. I audit company financial statements for a living. I look at financial statements for big corporations Day in and day out, I can go and value a company pretty easily. But one, is it worth my time? And two, are my metrics and numbers going to really help me in the long run? I would guess not because based on history, there's no telling based on what a company's valued at if it's going to really be that in the eyes of the
1: public. Your analysis has to be right and the market has to agree with you.
2: Yes. And that's a lot of time.
1: (laughs) What are the most common mistakes you see new investors making? What mistakes do you see amongst your friends that are your age and maybe your family and those in your community?
2: Yeah. So I think the number one thing is chasing returns, past returns. And I think that's the biggest thing is like dividend investing is a huge thing. And I think when people chase a yield because they pay a high dividend, they're not even looking at the company. They're seeing a number and they're saying, hey, this pays 8%. That's a really high dividend. I want to invest in that. But what if they're on the verge of bankruptcy? Or what if they're, Going downhill, well, is still investing in that company long term going to make sense? Because that eight percent is going to probably recoil and probably go away eventually if they go bankrupt or something happens with the company. And so I think a lot of people see the Game Stops, the AMC's, and they say, "I need to be a part of that." And so they experience FOMO, fear of missing out, and they get in at the bubble or the top per se, and it collapses, and they forget what they're actually invested in and why. And so then they sell at the bottom. And so as most people would say buy low, sell high. Well, they're doing exactly the opposite. And so people always preach that buy low, sell high, but instead they actually buy high and sell low a lot of times because they don't know what they're invested in. So you know, FOMO, fear of missing out, chasing returns, I think are, those are the three biggest things, especially with millennial investors that have access to the internet and they see all this information flowing everywhere nonstop.
1: When you look back to when you just started investing What do you know now that would have helped you grow your wealth quicker if you had known it back then?
2: Starting earlier would always be my answer to that. And I started when I was 21 years old, 22 years old. So if I would have started three years earlier, that would have been awesome. And I think that would have been my biggest thing is I wish I would have known more now. And I think that's most people in life as they go on, they say, I wish I would have known more at 38, at 48, at 58. It's always going to be the case. But if anybody's listening to this, and let's say they're 18 years old, start investing today. Learn about it. It's not that complicated. Download an ebook, read Common Sense and Mutual Funds, an easy book to read, and start investing because that's all it takes. And once you start investing, you'll understand the power of time. Time is absolutely the most important thing of investing in general. The more time, the more compound interest, the better the returns. And so I often say, start now. Another thing I want to mention though, for others that are listening that are. Later in the game, and they're like, well, time's not really on my side. Invest now. Like, just because you haven't invested up to this point doesn't mean you can't take advantage of investing in the future. A lot of people get bummed out or they get down on themselves and think, I'm 50, you know, I'm 48, I can't invest. You have a lot of time, relatively speaking. Get in the market. The best time to invest was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. And that's always going to hold true. So, that's what my, in general, my answer would be to that
1: being worried that it's too late doesn't make anything any better. What are you going to do, wait longer?
2: Yeah. Yeah. What's the alternative? You're going to sit there and hold cash for the next 10 years, 15 years? It doesn't make sense. So just start investing. Just learn, learn. Self-education is key. Going back to the online education conversation, you can learn within a week, honestly, with how much knowledge is at our, our fingertips.
0: I'm
1: a big proponent of actually taking action on the information that you learn, not just learning loads of information. So when someone is done listening to this episode, maybe they log off the Instagram Live or they're listening to the podcast or watching the YouTube video, I want them to go take action. What is that one action they should go take when they're done?
2: The number one thing is get a budget and get really sit down with your spouse. If you're single, do it yourself. If you have a spouse, involve them in this process. Sit down and create a budget. A budget is the single most foundational part of personal finance. It is the snapshot. It's understanding where everything's going. And if you do that, you're going to be so much better off just by knowing where things are. A CEO of a company could not direct a company without understanding where their funds are being spent, where they're making their most money. And if you don't do that on a personal level, then how are you going to succeed as, as an individual, just like as that company would not exceed as a company? So download a, a budget template. I have a free budget template in my in bio that is Awesome with analysis built into it for you guys to use. Use that, do that today. I promise you, you're going to be better off.
1: Brennan, thanks for joining me on the show today. For those listening that want to learn more and connect with you, where's the best place for them to go?
2: So, at Budget Dog is my Instagram. I have Twitter at Budget Dog as well. And I also have Facebook. So, connect me with any one of those. Go to my link and bio, and all my other links are within there, and you will be connected everywhere.
1: I will put a link to Brennan's resources, as well as a couple of different books and other resources that we talked about throughout the show in the show notes below, whether you're listening on YouTube or in your favorite podcast player, you can check those out below in the show notes. Brennan, thanks so much.
2: appreciate you having me, man.
1: All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP.